0: The Broadway hit musical Hamilton has already grossed $325 million. Some say it will gross a billion. Now you could understand if we had a hit musical named Washington or Jefferson or Adams, but Hamilton? Why a hit musical about the first secretary of the treasury? I've just recently begun listening to the biography by Chernow of Alexander Hamilton. It's 35 hours in length, but it's quite engaging and compelling. It moves along like a gripping piece of fiction. All I really remembered about Hamilton prior to listening to the book was that he died in a duel, but I couldn't imagine that would take 35 hours to tell about. I had not known, or maybe I had simply forgotten, that Hamilton really profoundly shaped our country, designing our economy from its earliest days. Hamilton formed the first federal bank. He created the first mint so that we would have our own currency. He crafted a policy about how we as a country would handle our accumulating national debt. And he is to blame for our first federal tax. I had always thought that as a country, we are who we are because of the philosophy of democracy, but actually, reading Hamilton, I can see that how we use our money as a country and as individuals profoundly shapes who we are as a people. I should not have been surprised. Today's scripture reminds us that monetary policy was also a hot-button issue in the time of Jesus. This brief dialogue between Jesus and the religious leaders shows how they were wrestling with the same issues, like the fairness of a tax and the meaning of currency. They come to Jesus with this question about taxes and money because they know that how they interact with their currency shapes the soul of the whole community. Two groups of religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians, both good Jewish men, come to Jesus and ask him, where do you stand on paying this unfair tax imposed on us by Rome? In some ways, it is the same question that was faced by a young Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton's first foray into public life was when he stood at a rally in New York, quite spontaneously, just following the Boston Tea Party, and declared that this British tax was completely unfair upon the colonies. Jesus' contemporaries live in Judea, a colony of Rome, and they also know that this tax upon them is unfair. Some say, we're not paying it. Others say, oh, we, we must pay it. And others are against the tax, but they don't want to make waves with Rome, so they're willing to pay it. And so Jesus is trapped. No matter how he answers this question about the tax, one group or the other will consider him to be a traitor. Knowing that he is trapped, Jesus comes up with this crafty answer of render or give back to the emperor what is his and to God what is God's. It's like saying give back to your president the things that are the president's and give back to God the things that are God's. The problem is, Jesus doesn't tell us where that line is drawn between our spiritual obligations and our civic ones. You and I belong in two places, to a country and to the holy realm of God, and we wonder sometimes how much of our hearts to entrust into each one. Sometimes we just feel divided I think of my niece Lauren who is a kindergarten teacher in Michigan and is also the mother of six-month-old Judah. Lauren says when she arrives in her kindergarten classroom first thing in the morning, all she can think about is Judah and how he's doing at daycare and what time she'll be able to pick him up that afternoon and if she took all his supplies that he needs that day and whether or not he's thriving and when she gets home at night and she cradles Judah in her arms all she can think about is her kindergartners and the projects that she needs to be working on in order to support them as their teacher. So many of us feel these divided loyalties. We wake up in the morning with competing demands. Maybe you're part of that sandwich generation that is trying to find nursing care facility for an aging parent while also getting your children to soccer or maybe you're active in a place like this congregation where you really want to serve on a committee or be involved in a mission project, but you struggle to find time to even get your own chores done or to sit down and have dinner with your family. One of the most dramatic images of divided loyalties I have ever read comes from this bizarre little novel called La Rose by Louise Erdrich. The novel opens with the tragic scene of a hunting accident in which a six-year-old boy perishes. The neighbor next door claims responsibility for the accident, and in an attempt to make up for this horrific loss, one father and mother offered to let the next-door neighbors raise their six-year-old son. Little LaRose moves in with the family next door, a family he has known all his life. But after a few weeks, both sets of parents realize that this isn't working out and that LaRose should really go back and forth between the two homes. But now LaRose, the little six-year-old boy, is afraid to leave his mom in his new home. He has discovered how terribly heartbroken she is and fears she would do something rash. One day, he and his sister go out into the barn, and they see a wooden chair in the middle of the barn, just beneath a rope. And they are so afraid that their mother might die of a broken heart. And so the little boy and the little girl take turns, one of them always being on watch with mom. LaRose gives his heart to both families. He's loyal to both sets of parents. He loves both sets of sisters. And you and i we love our country and its founding principles and we love our god and desire to live lives full of faithfulness we are dual citizens of two realms the realm of god and the realm of society just like alexander hamilton and his fellow american revolutionaries and just like the leaders of religion in the time of jesus we have to discern how to handle the competing demands upon our own hearts. In the scripture lesson today, those religious leaders try to trap Jesus with a trick question, but he turns the question and flips it back towards them, reminding them that they are the ones trapped between two worlds, the world of God and the world of society. And is so often the case in the scripture, Jesus answers a question with another question. They say, shall we pay the tax? And he says, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a coin. Whose picture is on the coin? What is written on the coin? What are we to make of the questions Jesus raises? Is he simply challenging the monetary policy of his day? After all, he had no Roman coin in his own pocket, but had to summon one from the crowd. So maybe he's challenging their beliefs about money, their belief that this money holds ultimate value. You and I live in a world that defines us with financial yardsticks. And it is not just in the world of high finance that we measure one another by how much our net worth is. I think of my friend, a pastor in the South. He told me about a woman in his church who lives next door to the church in some housing, some low-income housing built for the elderly by the congregation. There is one particular woman who lives in that low-income housing, who attends the church, and she comes into the church every Monday, sometimes Tuesday, to present her offering. And when she does, she wants to meet with the pastor to explain how to designate her $5 offering. She wishes to give $2 to the Sunday school and $2 to the overseas missions effort, and one dollar to the overhead of the church, and week after week she comes in taking 15, sometimes 20 minutes of the pastor's time to explain how to designate her five dollar offering. One day recently, she came in on a Monday. He didn't have time to meet with her. He rolled his eyes to himself as he sat down across from her, And she handed him a piece of paper and said, I just signed these papers and I wanted you to have a copy because I have this little annuity and upon my death, the church will receive $75,000 and I just wanted you to know about it. He was amazed at her generosity and shocked that he had judged her and her $5 offering when she was so lavish in her faithfulness whose face is on the coin what does that coin say is it the measure of who we are or are we much more than our net worth whose face is on the coin what name is inscribed or carved upon it maybe jesus is flatly saying don't pay that tax it's unfair Caesar is corrupt, getting rich off the poor, building those lavish buildings with the exorbitant taxes he has levied against the peasant class. Sometimes we are called to protest what is happening in the public sphere. Many of you knew Joan Newby, who sang here in the choir for so many years, sometimes she even sang solos for us. She was short and petite, shorter than me, Her eyes sparkled when she visited with you. You thought that you were the only person in the world when she fixated those sparkly eyes upon you and began to smile and to talk. She was always happy, even as her health began to fail, even when I would visit her in the hospital. And I was really surprised on the day of her funeral to learn some stories about her childhood. Her sister Joyce stood here and talked about the day that Joan and Joyce walked from their home in Atchison, Kansas into town to go to the Five and Dime to buy some candy. Joyce remembers that someone, a little boy, spit upon Joan and they ran home to tell their mother and their mother's face was crestfallen. As she explained to them that they were dark-skinned and the little boy was white-skinned, and sometimes people discriminate against people whose skin color is different. Joan went on to go to college at K-State, and when she arrived at her dormitory room, she saw that there were two beds, but she was the only girl in that room, and it was some time before she realized that those in charge of the dorm did not think it was appropriate for a white girl and a black girl to share the same dorm room. I wondered, as I heard Joyce tell these stories, how Joan lived with such joy, such delight in the midst of a country that treated her unfairly. She spent her life working for a better world, whether she was singing or working at her job or creating friendships across barriers that others would not cross. Joan worked to create a world that looked more like God's and less like Caesar's. I think right now of those children, those teenagers in Parkland, Florida, who were doing the same thing that Joan was doing PUSHING US AS A COUNTRY TO CREATE A WORLD THAT IS SAFE AND WELCOMING FOR ALL OF GOD'S CHILDREN. AND SO JESUS SAYS, BRING ME A COIN, WHOSE IMAGE IS THERE, WHOSE INSCRIPTION, WHOSE EPIGRAPH. MAYBE JESUS REALLY ISN'T TELLING US WHETHER TO PAY THE TAX OR NOT, BUT RATHER HOW TO PLACE OUR PRIORITIES ON THE PRINCIPLES OF OUR FAITH TO BE TRUE FIRST TO GOD AND TO COUNTRY second. I think of Desmond Doss who joined the U.S. Army in 1942. He was a skinny little kid who refused to carry a gun, but desperately wanted to serve his country. Desmond was a Seventh-day Adventist who took the Ten Commandments personally and refused to kill another human being. He requested to his senior Army officers that he be given the seventh day of the week off on Saturday so that he could worship with his fellow Seventh-day Adventists. His fellow soldiers bullied him and thought of him as soft. They connived to try to get him discharged from the army, and when they were sent into combat, one soldier looked at him straight in the eye and said, you will not come out of here alive. As a conscientious objector, Desmond Doss could have asked to be reassigned, but he wanted to serve to go with his troops to help his country. Japan was defending Okinawa, and the American troops were trying to secure a ridge called Hacksaw Ridge. Maybe you saw the movie by that name. When they were up on that ridge and the Japanese attacked, all the US soldiers were ordered to immediately retreat. Desmond Doss defied the order. He stayed up on that ridge completely vulnerable while he rescued 75 of his fallen comrades. He did this on his Sabbath. He was the first person to receive the Medal of Honor without ever firing a shot. When President Truman pinned the medal on Desmond Doss, he said to him, I consider this a higher honor than being president whose image is on that coin what is inscribed there maybe Jesus never really answers this question but turns it back for you and me to answer recalling that God made all of us in the Garden of Eden in God's very own image Jesus asks whose image is do you want, stamped upon your life? The emperor's image is on that coin. Inscribed upon that coin are the words, High Priest, Lord, for the civic leader demands our all, even our worship. Jesus asks, in whose image do you wish to be made, the culture's or God's? Is there any part of you you would like to keep separated from the God who created you? Or is the one who gave you absolutely everything worthy of everything from you? Over and over and over again throughout the pages of Scripture, Jesus tells us that God writes upon our hearts the words of love for us. The next time this word written or inscribed, will appear in Mark's Gospel will be when Jesus is hung on the cross and they inscribe King of the Jews. What will be inscribed upon your life and upon mine? Will folks look at us and say, wow, what a great citizen? Or will they look at us and say, I see there the image of Christ.